Emily makes me want to get dressed. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Layla Darabi. And I'm Lori Edelman. This episode, we watched Emily in Paris and asked Rachel Flight, what do French women know? So Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging this week uh, along the theme of our of our episode, which is all about uh, Paris and Francophiles. I have a little list of the French podcasts I like to listen to to keep up with uh, Francophilia, but also to learn slang. So I don't know if I've shared these before, but uh, my absolute favorite French podcast is called Les Moquifes, which means uh, let me like it, essentially. If France had a Jezebel-type website, it's it's the editors of a sort of pop culture feminist-ish uh, magazine getting together, and they do little and big likes. They binge and cringe. It's, it's the French version of us. On the highbrow end, there are a couple of feminist podcasts I like, more highbrow podcasts. There's a, also has Keef in the name, Keef Taras, which means basically love your race mm. is an interesting kind of intellectual podcast where the, the host interviews people about issues of race and culture and politics in France. And because I listened to that show, I discovered a podcast called Jins, which means sex in Arabic. And that is a podcast that is occasionally in English, mostly in French. And the host Kamal uses a nom de plume to talk about sexuality in the Arab world and in France. And I highly recommend that. Wow. All three of those sound absolutely incredible. Are you binging or cringing? I'm going to stay on your theme here that you've um, selected for us of podcasting. So I'm actually going to cringe the fact that over the past two years, the number of new podcasts created dropped by nearly 80%. So this is between 2020 and 2022. And this is from an article on Neiman Lab about the number of brand new podcasts that are being created. And there's a lot of structural reasons for this, some of which you can find out in uh, another podcast that I really love, which is called Shameless Acquisition Target. Um, and that's a really meta kind of quirky and fun podcast that has a lot of in-jokes and it's written and hosted by a woman who has a lot of experience in podcasting and she decides to quote unquote sell out and create a podcast that she can sell and that can be acquired for money and it is the very podcast that uh, she creates, which is called Shameless Acquisition Target. So again, very circular, very meta, very well done. And another podcast that I've been deeply appreciating, but also really makes me cringe our criminal justice system is called Bone Valley. And this got a write-up in the New York Times last week because a judge who gives a lot of testimony in the podcast actually stepped down from the bench to pursue justice for a man who he believes to be wrongfully incarcerated. 
whose story is documented in this podcast. So this is about Bone Valley. It's about a, a cold case, a murder that took place in Florida. And um, it's just beautiful storytelling by this man, Gilbert King, who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book about four black men who were wrongfully convicted of rape in the 40s. And this is just a, a stunning follow up to that. So again, cringing, the lack of new podcasts, but also really appreciate and, and binging the podcasts that are out there that are, are doing incredible uh, storytelling in this uh, difficult environment for new shows. And certainly we are the most independent <laughs> of all possible options for, for how to do a podcast. So we we thank all our cringe watchers for your support. And we have an amazing new episode for you. This is our first episode of 2023. And we decided to cover a show that a lot of people seem to really have an opinion about, whether good, bad. It's rarely in the middle. <laughs> and that show is Emily in Paris. I think this is the show that whether or not our friends admit it, this is what everyone watched, quote unquote, over break, because this show comes out every season. This is the third time people claim to hate it. There are many, many articles about how much people hate this show, how much Americans in Paris hate this show, how much the fashion industry hates this show. French people hate this show. Yet everyone seems to watch this show. Yes. So <laughs> we have the best cover of all. We, we watched it, but only because we had to cover it on our podcast. That's right. And we only had to follow along on all the different uh, various men that Emily encounters in her journey and Google them and Google their full names and then add the term shirtless afterwards for research. Yes, very meticulous research <laughs> because we're thorough. <laughs> Nothing if not thorough. And we have the perfect guest today to get into this with us because she's not only from the fashion community, but she's also a brilliant filmmaker and so can kind of comment both on the fashion in the show, the fact of the show itself and the context in which it's created. And also she has some great things to say about uh, France and French women. And Layla has a special connection to today's guest. Yes. Our guest today is Rachel Flight, who once upon a time was my downstairs neighbor. I didn't know who Rachel was. I noticed her in the hallway, always very fashionable. Her, her roommate seemed really cool. And one day I was taking a shower and the downstairs neighbors came pounding on the door because it was leaking into their apartment. And that's how uh, my roommate and I and Rachel and her roommate all sort of got to know each other. And Rachel has a really interesting life. She most recently directed the movie Introducing Selma Blair, which is about the actor Selma Blair's journey with MS from diagnosis to trying different treatments. And uh, it is a documentary that has come out to great acclaim. Highly recommend watching it. It really gives you a new look on chronic illness, but also on what you might think of Selma Blair, the actor from those teen movies. I highly recommend. Uh, but she got her start. And when we were neighbors, she was making video content and directing shorts for the high end luxury brand Honor, which is why we uh, when we were talking about watching Emily in Paris, we we sought out Rachel for her eye. That's right. And I just really found her to be a refreshing vibe, to be honest. So I do think she's the perfect person. And we had a really far reaching conversation. Uh, we talked about career life balance and we talked about uh, sex and sexuality and you know whether French women really are more chill and more fluid about their relationships and about the concept of monogamy um, or affairs. So uh, we really hope that you enjoy this episode and please let us know what you think. Boogie, boogie, 
Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to hear what you think of this show, especially as uh, someone I think of as a fashion guru. That's nice to hear. I'm already very excited that we're wearing the same shade of orange. Oh, yeah. Which, if the Devil Wears Prada is any indication, it's been passed along from some high fashion house without my knowledge, but probably to your knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. What's the reference? I don't know. I want to kick us off the way this episode and series three kicks off of Emily in Paris with a a very trippy dream sequence that takes place on the Eiffel Tower. So it's been a long time since we've seen Emily. And this first episode of season three starts with a dream sequence at the top of the Eiffel Tower where Emily encounters her American boss, Madeline, and her French boss, Sylvie. And in her dream, she's very honest with them and she lets them know she plans to stay in France, that she's leaving Savoir, the French PR firm she's been working with. And then in real life, she wakes up just before in the dream, she falls to the to her death off the Eiffel Tower. And then in real life, in, within the show, she runs to the bathroom and she cuts bangs. So that's how we start off with bangs and a bang. There have been a lot of articles, Rachel, about what American expats think of Emily in Paris, but I'm really curious from your perspective what the fashion industry thinks of Emily in Paris and what you think of Emily in Paris in terms of representation of the fashion industry. Well, I can't speak for the whole fashion industry, and I would say that my experience of Emily is that when I first watched the show, I was appalled by it. I was like, this is like, this basic bitch is like so boring. And I cannot believe that there's a whole show called Emily in Paris. And I was like, very negative about it. I made fun of it. I was like, don't waste your time. Don't watch Emily in Paris. And then I really ragged on it. I found it offensive. And I love Paris and I love fashion and I love like interesting content as a filmmaker. It's like very important to me that like, if it's on Netflix, it should be good, you know, to get there. It takes a lot of work. And I was like, oh, so upset by it. And then flash forward a couple of years later, my dear friend Cooper, who is like he's like more representative of the fashion industry at this point. I mean, I mostly make films now, but I still consider myself a member of that world in some way. And I like trust him implicitly with his style. And he's like constantly working in like the most important editorials. And he's like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with Emily in Paris. And it was shocking to me. I was just shocked by this. I was like, how could you like this show? And he's like, every single man she encounters is extremely hot and she's always wearing a really good outfit. And then it occurred to me that I actually didn't watch past the first episode. (laughs) So I got COVID in December and I was like, I'm gonna watch. And I knew that I was going to be speaking to you guys. So I needed to prepare and I couldn't just like show up, like having watched just episode one of season three. So I binged the entire season through season three. 
in order to prepare for today. That is incredibly flattering. We, we love it when we find out that we force people to watch a lot of television. <laughs> well, I was like so inspired by her outfits. So she starts out season three in the dream and then later the outfit shows up again in this massive pink feathery coat. What did you think of that outfit? Well, I loved it. I mean, just like everything that she wears is opulence and like it, the costumes on the show are just so good. I mean, like at every turn, she's wearing like a better and better and better outfit. And I'm, I'm telling you, like I'm wearing sweatpants today because I like had a lunch meeting and I was like all dressed up. And then I was like coming back to my apartment and I put on these like tie dye sweatpants because it's just like more cozy and comfortable. But Emily makes me want to get dressed. Something, Rachel, that you're touching on for me, and I love that we've like jumped right in, is kind of the ways in which this show a little bit plays with like the male gaze and our expectations of like what makes TV important. And that's part of why we started this podcast in the first place. Part of my reason, I basically was like prescribed television by my therapist. My therapist was like, you need to chill out more. And I kind of like sometimes need a little push to like veg out. And so this is helpful for me in that way. So as Layla said, we do love to spread that, uh, to spread that cheer for people. A lot of our guests are very productive people. So we like to give them that little loophole to be productive while they're watching TV. But I really like what you're saying about how dismissible Emily in Paris is. And then to be delighted by it by surprise. I think that's something a lot of people kind of experience with this show. And certainly, I did not expect to just have a line of beautiful men paraded by me at every turn, kind of without really any rhyme or reason to it beyond just here are some beautiful men that Emily happens to have met in the most unlikely of places. Here you go. Um, so I, I really like what you're, you're saying. And I'm curious also if you're feeling anybody else's style in the show beyond Emily. Of course, she has her bosses, her French boss and her American boss make appearances in this in this episode. Um, so curious if anything stands out there for you. Well, I think Sylvie's quite chic. And I mean, she's like that sort of like toned down like French woman, although I'm so confused about her accent. Like, I just don't understand why she doesn't have like a thicker French accent if she's like the French boss. But I also really do think Kate Walsh's character's style is just like epic. Like, it's just so funny. I love her character in general. Mindy is like a close runner up, I think, to Emily's style. I can't stand cummy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't I find her like so pardon my French fucked up I don't like Kemi say more <laughs> I just think she's like a hypocrite and I think she's like the worst kind of uh, I feel bad saying this this is a fictional character she's like the worst kind of woman honestly mm. like not like she made this pact and like, I don't love the storyline of like trying to get like Gabriel and with her mother and that like, 
like the trickery they did to like get Gabriel. And I'm just not a fan of that whole storyline. And then I'm also just like, oh, Emily, like I know we're only talking about episode one, but I went through the whole season. I believe that like true love will find you in the end. And as Daniel Johnston said, you know, if you're meant to be with someone, you'll be with them. And Camille is just, yeah, she made that pack. She's manipulative. And she's like, I don't think her style is very interesting. (laughs) But Emily is the showstopper. Like style is out of this world. I think the accent is just because in real life, the actor, Philippine Lerabolia, is extremely bilingual. And I think she's become more bilingual since this show has gone on. I have to say, I think Sylvie is the is the most authentic French character on the show. The most realistic character, period, on the show. She strikes me as an actual French woman in what she represents. Totally. Absolutely. Agree. And I, I love, uh, I know we're not talking about the future episodes, but since you brought up Mindy in the future episodes, that uh, is it the Lady Gaga cover where she's wearing the, the, the jumpsuit and just spread out on the piano? Her performance costumes are unreal. Unreal. So we wouldn't be cringe watchers if we didn't kind of talk about these two modes of feminist women that are represented by kind of the American boss and the French boss. Well, I think one of the reasons I love Sylvie is because she's in an open marriage. She has a younger lover. She's always poo-pooing Emily. She has that classic style, but she doesn't overdo it. And she's representing one sort of feminine ideal. And then the Kate Walsh character swoops in, super pregnant, workaholic, just naively thinks that she can do anything. She works right up until her water breaks. And she's representing a different sort of feminist ideal for Emily. What do you think, Rachel, of the way this show is pitting the uh, the girl boss against the girl boss? Well, you know, it's like kind of like tropes in a way. One thing that I think about is Kate Walsh, her character, Madeline, like she is clearly having a baby by herself there's no mention of a partner so I kind of liked that you know it's interesting because I think that with the show you know I just I find it to be like a little bit silly but yet I couldn't stop watching it and I actually don't watch silly television like I'm like pretty serious about my content consumption But there was something and I just kept on like my boyfriend was like talking about like this show he was watching and how it was like so good and I should watch it. And it was like, yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like it's a British spy show. It sounded great, but I was like secretly like I can't stop watching Emily. (laughs) I kept on being like, yeah, I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to start watching that. And I just didn't. And then like the new season came out. And so it was like literally right as I was having COVID. So it's like very tropey, you know, it's like, this is like the French woman. And then this is the American woman. And to me though, Emily is kind of cool. Cause I feel like Emily is going to carve out her own way. What I enjoy about Emily is that she's not trying to like find a husband. She's like actually more interested in her career. And I hate the sort of binary of that decision, but it's kind of like, it's kind of true. The women in my life who like were like hunting for a husband, they found that husband and they married that person and they like 
had the family, you know, and then there's others like myself who, you know, I was like really excited about my career. I want and like love having balance, but that was not my priority in my twenties or thirties, honestly. So Emily is this like, she's almost like too focused on her work. It's like kind of insane how she's constantly moving and shaking. And like, I actually found it to be quite inspiring. I was like, wow, like you really love your job in marketing. (laughs) That's cool. Like I'm trying to figure out what my next like film project is. And I'm like, I wish I was working as hard as Emily in a way. I mean, she has quite the creative process. Yeah, I admire her in this weird way because not only is she working really hard, but she seems to like have really great outfits. And like, obviously, I know she has like a costume designer, and there's a whole, there's probably a team of 16 people that get her dressed on the show. But yeah, she's like cool. One of the things I really like with her about Emily, especially in season one, is that she actually sleeps with the people she goes out with. I find often on TV shows, they're very chaste and the main characters will date a lot, but they don't actually show them going to bed. And in the beginning, she got to Paris and she got down pretty quickly. I know. I appreciated that too. And I feel like it's it's like, not to sound old and stodgy, but it's like very much that like Gen Z vibe that we're getting from Emily. I'm a ex-ennial, so I'm right on the border of Gen X and millennial. So I consider myself more Gen X because I like know how to use a fax machine. And like, that just feels like of a different era, but I do have some millennial leanings. However, I did grow up in like the late eighties, nineties being told that like, if I had sex, I might die because I might get AIDS, you know? Like it was a different time. So I think with Emily, there's like a little bit more of a liberation with her. And I appreciate that. And I think like the Gen Z, they're very much like in a different realm than I was or we were. I also really learned a lot about AIDS in my sex ed classroom. So there's there's definitely a through line there. I really like what you're saying, Rachel, about feeling inspired by Emily. And I wonder if that's part of what's like sticky about the show in a way for many people, because for many women I know who do care about their career that much, it doesn't tend to look this glamorous. Like she has this way of, you know, kind of beating the odds every time, like everyone's against her. Her boss will not cut her a break. They're all kind of plotting Uh, To exclude her, you know, her clients are kind of hitting on her or acting inappropriately towards her. She doesn't speak the language. She's kind of unwelcome, yet she always swoops in to save the day in a way through like hard work and great ideas and looking fabulous, but not in a way that's obnoxious. Like Camille is the one that we're annoyed by, (laughs) not Emily. Like somehow we are all team Emily and there's pieces of ourselves that we see maybe in all of these women when we're watching. It kind of does remind me in a way of the Sex and the City move. And I know there's Darren Walker who's involved with both shows, but it's sort of like subverting these ideas about only being able to be one type of woman by allowing yourself to see yourself in many around across the board and, you know, kind of continuing to watch and 
imagine that you're that singer who's, you know, rich in your home country, but you still have to like make a new name for yourself in Paris. Or, you know, you're that working girl who's still going to make it look glamorous, even though you stayed up all night to pull something off. Or, you know, you're the boss who decided to have a baby on your own, but, you know, you're still going to be kicking butt in your work. So there's just like all of these kind of against all odds things that they stack up and kind of allow you to fantasize and project about being any one of these women. That is like, part of it the stickiness of the show but I also have to tell you that I did not watch Sex in the City and I've decided we uh-huh. may just live this life without the reference <laughs> it was during my Ow. dark years in television watching that it was out I just had some dark years I just was not watching tv for a while I've seen enough episodes and I definitely saw like the movie to know some of the references but like I just didn't watch it. If I may, if you ever decide to change your mind about that, like, please call us. And I will just say the movie is like not even tonally in the same universe. And I am excited for you to do whatever you want. But if you do choose to go this way, I think you will have some enjoyable moments ahead of you. As I said it, I was like, you should watch that show. Skip the movies. Start at season one. Because I personally also avoided it for a long, long time. But in the early days when she's a magazine writer living in a walk-up and smoking and and interviewing friends and has a column about having sex in the city, it's a time capsule of a very specific, very privileged New York, but still one that I think you'll remember. It's camp. Yes. Um, Leila, we are so not hitting our marks, but I don't care. (laughs) I'm loving this convo. Shall I proceed to our next scene setting? Yeah, let's talk about McDonald's. Yeah, let's let's bring it down to the lowbrow. We're using too many big words. Also in this episode, we see that Emily is sort of playing the field. She hasn't told Sylvie yet that she's planning to leave, and she hasn't told Madeline yet that she's planning to go work for Sylvie's new company. So she actually ends up pitching both women McDonald's as a new client, and she runs into Gabriel and Antoine at both offices, and Gabriel takes her to see how the French do McDonald's. Now we're trying to like get at some sense of cultural difference and just FYI on this podcast, Layla and I have a running joke that she is a Francophile and I do not do French. I have classically mispronounced everything French that ever has come up on the show. So that is the cultural difference between us. But we wanted to kind of use this as an example of like, the what is this difference between European versus American views on things? And specifically this idea of like, non-monogamy, I think is something that looms large in in the culture, like this idea that French are much more fluid and, you know, they're way less strict about this idea of monogamy and they just roll their eyes at the conservative, silly, boring Americans who, you know, hunker down into their monogamous marriages. So I'm kind of curious, what do you make of kind of that trope in particular and what do you make of this broadly, this kind of cultural difference between uh, French and American women and feminism, even thinking about like the difference between how they might have both approached something like the Me Too movement? 
Well, I used to have this book. I might still have it called What French Women Know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually an Anglophile who loves France. With that being said, I have admired the like sort of easy breeziness of French women that I sort of ascertain from books, movies, television, and like actually just going to France. There's like a chicness, there's like a thinness, there's an easy breezy, there's a good like relationship with food and sex and cigarettes that's very attractive to me. And I think that that's probably why I gravitated towards that book. I'm just looking on my shelf. I wonder, I think I still have it. Anyway, doesn't matter. The point is, is that I read it and I am like a neurotic Jewish person that comes from like a long line of like neurotic Jewish women who have been like trying to lose 10 pounds for like all of eternity. I'm trying to break that cycle. I'm not trying to lose 10 pounds today. So, but I do want to like wear like a high-waisted trouser and like a little like silk blouse and like a loafer and like walk with like my sack to the marche and get like a baguette and feel very sexy and like not concerned with how much my boyfriend desires me, which I'm not actually. So I might be like a little French right now (laughs) myself, but I definitely have like a lot of dietary restrictions that make me feel not French because of that aforementioned Jewish digestive system. I don't know, like they do portray French as so easy breezy, laissez-faire, like no big deal. I really feel that. Well, I think what's interesting in this show, Lori referenced a little bit Emily's clients hitting on her. And uh, and well, first of all, the McDonald's scene, she's going out to lunch with an ex and he's so chill. And I feel like a big theme of this show is him like French splaining things to her that she's tightly wound and he's like, ah, you're in France. We do everything better. My fear with this episode is it's just going to be me pronouncing a lot of French words and talking about uh, my French husband and, you know, junior year abroad. So I'll spare us all that. Lori also referenced the different views of Me Too. Uh, do either of you remember Catherine Deneuve and the open letter from the French actresses about how we were just taking this a little too seriously and a woman likes to be appreciated? You know, the hashtag in French for Me Too, it basically translates to out your pig. And there was a raging French feminist movement that was outing people in France. And then this older generation of French women in film in particular came out and they were like, this is generational. I like to be appreciated. Some workplace flattery is okay. And they completely poo-pooed, dismissed, and got canceled here briefly. They you know, spilled a lot of ink that I think resonated with a lot of French people, because I think there is a big cultural difference about what's okay in terms of sexuality in the workplace or just sexuality in life. I know. Well, like, yeah, I definitely think like it was totally inappropriate that like Antoine was buying Emily like lingerie. Mm. But the part of me that like read what French women know is like, that's sexy. Like, take the fancy lingerie and enjoy it, you know? So, Hmm. like, I don't know. I guess, like, I'm a little bit of a contradiction here. But, like, yeah, there is something about, like, the sexual liberation that's portrayed 
you know, especially like with Sylvie's younger boyfriend and like, there's that scene, I can't remember in what season, because it was all a blur and I had COVID, but like where they're watching the couple and they're like, is it the mother or the boyfriend? Oh, yeah. And like in America, it's like such a big deal if you're like an older woman dating a younger man. It just like never happens, you know, and it's just like, I mean, it happens, but it's just like very it's it's a big deal. Whereas like if your boyfriend's older than you, it's not a big deal. It's like, oh, she's dating someone younger, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I do think the Me Too movement is one of the most like powerful things in our cultural time. And I'm really glad it it happened. And so like that part of things, I'm just like, I love the French, but I, and I do think that Americans take things very seriously. And I do think that we're in this massive pendulum swing where like there's like a hypersensitivity, but like I do think the pendulum will like swing back to the middle and that we will learn so much about this very sensitive time and like take what we need and like leave the rest, you know? I'm eager to get to some of the lighter topics because I feel like we have to talk about another hashtag, hashtag justice for Alfie. And uh, I feel like we've only vaguely alluded to the hot men in this show. In my book, he ranks number one. But just to set another scene from this episode, Emily goes to French class because in theory, she's going to speak more French now. They have more subtitles for the viewers now. And, and one of the things I like about season three is that when it's just French people speaking to other French people, they're actually speaking French. I don't know if you guys noticed that. That's a big innovation in this season. It's a little more realistic because previously Emily was around and everybody in this French agency was speaking English all day because this one woman was there. Anyway, Emily goes to French class. Her very sexy French female professor has a Sartre quote on the whiteboard that's like, not choosing is still choosing. Ne pas choisir, c'est encore choisir. And, and Alfie shows up and it's his last class and he's about to leave for London. That's a big tension in this episode. Emily is constantly choosing not Gabriel over Alfie so much as her job over Alfie. Yes, she's an independent woman, but I think personally, just avoiding conflict by not really figuring out where she is with her relationship. So one question for both of you is, how do you feel about Emily's non-choices here? Is she an asshole? How does Alfie rank for you in Emily's Lovers? He's awesome. Like Emily is just like a classic people pleaser. She's like so afraid of delivering disappointing news that she's just like staying in this like weird vagueness. So I think she needs to like, you know, put on her big girl pants and like, you know, tell the boss, like, I'm taking this other job. Thank you so much for the time that you had me at your company. And I think like uh, she's stringing Alfie along a little bit and he deserves better. I do believe like true love, you know, shall prevail, but like this guy is like a total catch. And I think she's a little bit like stringing him along because of her weird situation with Gabriel. So yeah, I'm all for justice for Alfie. I don't want to spoiler alert, but like, I want Alfie to just be like, you know, forget this. I'm moving on. Yeah. I'm in that camp too. Although I find Alfie to be more of a catch physically than personality wise, just for me. I'm not into the like, my flirtation style is to neg you, <laughs> which he was like hardcore doing in the beginning of their courtship. But I think as 
time went on, it became clear that like he was maybe more emotionally mature than that would indicate. But I think with Alfie, I totally agree, Rachel, that she was stringing him along. My whole thing is why did it take a British person for us to meet a black person in Paris? (laughs) like confused by that um and also you do start to ask the question of just like why are these guys immediately falling head over heels for this woman and i think there are some particular sensitivities around that when it's like a very attractive successful sweet black man who is just like inexplicably like really into this conventionally attractive white woman for her not kind of having to do much. I think that's a very fun element of the show most of the time, but it was like a little bit less fun in that situation for me. I think in season three, I'm starting to warm to Gabrielle, Gabriel a little bit. Can I also just say how poorly they chose the main character, French people's names? Like they they could have chosen names that were more closely pronounced in English and French. But anyway, I found him very, I don't know, douchey French in the beginning. He was just a floppy haired chef. Uh, But this season, I do think that they built up some real chemistry. I think his haircut helps. I think it's a little shorter and I like it. And I could see how Emily seems to be taking Alfie for granted because he has done such a 180. He, after nagging her last season, he's confessed that he's staying in France for her. And now he's just pressuring her about when she's going to go to London. So I could see why she's just assuming that he'll just always be around. Well, I wonder if we want to move to our cringe fire round. Layla, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, that sounds good. Rachel, this is our rapid fire. We have some questions for you. There are no wrong answers. So the first question is, is there another show that you're binging right now? I am not. I have not binged anything since Emily in Paris, I must confess. So we'll just pencil you in for Sex in the City. (laughs) (laughs) Nice callback, Layla. Okay, what is something anywhere in the world, in society and culture, that you are finding so cringy right now? This like weird trend of like this monotone voice on TikTok videos where people are cooking and they're like, first I will take the pasta and put it into the bowl. Then I will put tomatoes in, then I will put cream, then I will put spinach, then I will mix it. Then this weird, I can't describe it. It's like this TikTok cooking video voice and it makes me crazy. But I still watch these TikToks all the time. Wait, this is my other one, which is also cringy. Young women in their 20s who are going out wearing actually the same outfit. (laughs) As their friends? Yeah. As each other? Yeah, I've seen this. I don't know if it's on purpose. And if it's on purpose, that's like psychotically cringy. (laughs) They're like all wearing the same outfit. Like out with my boyfriend, I'm like pulling him, being like, look. Look, they're all wearing the same outfit. And I don't want to like hate on younger women because I'm a, I love all younger women. I'm there for them on their journey, but no. (laughs) Do not wear the same outfit as your friend. No, don't. But I am here for the videos where women trick their male partners into all showing up to brunch in the same outfit. Yes, I love those videos. (laughs) 
I like that. I have to watch for that. We'll send you a link. I'm grossed out by like yoga pants at restaurants in New York City. That's like my fashion snob in me. You might have lost that battle, but I hear you. I might have done that, but I still, I okay, feel yeah. I, I adore you. It's fine. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed in TV, film, or literature? I would like to see more women who've chosen not to have children portrayed everywhere and not because they're like infertile or because they can't find like the right man. Just because they, I honestly just want to see more women who've chosen to not have kids as like an actual like choice of lifestyle. Yes. Your last cringe fire question. Do you have a favorite scene in a book, a movie, anywhere in culture depicting sex or sexuality? It's so easy. It's dirty dancing. Oh, nice. That is just handsome <laughs> forever. Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Gray, like in the rainstorm in his house or whatever, his bungalow. Solomon Burke is playing Cry to Me. It is the most iconic, perfect love scene ever created. Well, damn, we might all need to do some rewatching after this. This is lovely. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing yourself and some hard takes here, I think, that you shared today. We didn't take the easy way out. <laughs> and I'm going to like immediately like start watching Sex in the City. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so excited. Thank you so much to our guest, Rachel Flight. Her website is rachelflight.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L-F-L-E-I-T.com. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Engram created our theme song, and you can find DL on SoundCloud. And as always, thank you for cringe watching. <laughs>